You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 193. Getting close to 200. We got some plans that you don't know about, Jake. We may end up doing our 2 earth episode from... One of our new happy hours in the east part of the U.S. Still trying to lock down details, so I'm not going to share them until we get it locked down. But how do I sound? You sound great. I'm in the new studio, and I got foam acoustics on the wall, so I should sound really good. And I'm in my new studio, and I have some issues I need to work on, but that's what post-editing is for. <laughs> do we have any good reviews? We always get good reviews, most of the time anyway. So great show from Mike. ONG from the United States of America. I really enjoyed the 2020 predictions episode. This is a great podcast and a really good place to keep in touch with the current industry topics. One thing I would like to hear more about are the longer term limitations of renewable energy, including the lifespan of wind turbines or solar panels and associated retirement obligation costs. A discussion of the environmental impact of creating this clean quotation mark, energy would also be helpful, i.e. the impact of rare earth minerals, mining and processing. Thanks for the podcast and everything you do to help support the industry. Mike. Jake, I don't know about you, but I guess that Mike's not a super fan of renewables. Yeah, probably not. But thanks, Mike. We really appreciate the review. It is actually a great review. And and Mike, I'm right there with you. A lot of people don't think of the entire story of, of renewable energy. There's a place for it, right? But th- there's a whole story there that, that's not always being told. But if you want to be like Mike and get a big shout out in the show, leave us a review. And if we read your review on the air, we will give you a shout out. And by the way, I've been, a, I've been questioned around this. We don't pick and choose which reviews we, we read out on the air. We put them all out there unless they're just re- retarded for some reason. Even if they don't like the show, we put them there. The thing is, we get so many reviews that by the time I get it worked into an episode, it's it's been in the inbox for a month. So we're not picking and choosing. It just takes us a while to get to it. So if you left us a review, we will get to it on the air. And speaking of on the air, let's get to news stories, Jake. Get right into it. So the duck backlog is in decline. Is this a sign of the U.S. shale pullback? We've talked a lot about this. I uh, haven't talked a whole lot about ducks. We are not talking about the ones that quack. We are talking about drilled but uncompleted wells. So since the shale boom has unfolded, the number of oil wells that were drilled but never completed steadily rose. So that backlog was growing. And now that figure has plunged by a surprising 10%. And the newest sign that it could be a tough time for drillers. Yeah, this is to be expected, right? As as you quit drilling wells, you need to keep production moving. So you move over to the wells that you had drilled but not you didn't complete. You go ahead and complete them and you go in production. Now, the thing is, the price of hydrocarbons is more or less regulated by supply and demand. So for a long time now, for five years now, we've had a, a bit of an oversupply. For a few years, we had a whole bunch of oversupplies when the price is tanked. So as these ducks are coming online, as we go in production, and as people aren't drilling new wells, I suspect that the oversupply will start to shrink and prices will start inching their way back up. Now, what happens when prices start inching their way back up, then the operators go, okay, it makes financial sense to drill again. So it's, it's kind of a check and balance thing, but this is to be expected. It is interesting, Jake, though, before this happened, you had a lot of people predicting all kinds of stuff around ducks. And the truth is, as the operators need the, the money, the production, they just they just complete the wells going production. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So keep an eye on this. Obviously, this kind of ties in. I hate that it's been, it seems like the past few months, it's kind of been doom and gloom, but is what it is. It's news. And so we're here to just report that. So Mark, did you hear about this? BlackRock is apparently wanting to go green. No, I did not hear about this at all. Once again, I think this is just major ESG issues. There's a lot of pressure on investors to go green. We've talked about this and I think it's a, it's 
becoming very, very apparent that this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. It seems like almost monthly. Yeah, I'll give you my two cents on this. It's greenwashing, which is a cool name that I got from the article that I will keep in my vocabulary. Let's see what they really do. This is no different than, and nothing against the new Equinor, the old Statoil, but you know, they changed their name. A lot of PR and marketing dollars were spent to talk about how they're going down the renewable route. They're still buying leases in the Gulf of Mexico. They're still drilling for oil and gas. It hasn't changed. It's just they're they're looking to play more in that environmental responsibility place, right? Same way with you see a lot of investment funds talking about they could diversify, divest from their fossil fuel investments. I haven't seen any of them do it. Now, I have seen a couple of universities do it, and then all of a sudden their income stream dried up because they got rid of what was making money for them, and then their boards got mad at them for doing it. So I suspect that this is just a little greenwashing by BlackRock. And at the same time, there is a market and a real financially sound market for renewable energy. You know, it, it has its place. So, you know, if, if if you know you see investor and you see funds put money into it like they have been. A big thing that's going on here in the U.S. is all the subsidies from the states and the federal government make it an attractive target when you know you can make a profit from it because the state or federal government subsidizing it. So keep an eye on this. Let's see what they really divest themselves or, or quit investing in. I think this is just a little bit of a PR stunt. So Germany is set to close all coal-fired energy plants by 2038. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> We'll see how that works out. I don't believe, according to the article, I don't believe they're moving to natural gas. They're trying to move to nuclear, right? Yeah. So this is the second time they did this. Five, six years ago, they had an inner wind project where they were going to have at least 20% of all their energy come from renewables. And the, the country spent a lot of money trying to get there. The reality of what happened is they had to build more cold fire plants to make up for the lack of electrical production from the renewable side, which actually increased CO2 emissions. And the price of electricity got so expensive in Germany, they, people called it their second mortgage. A lot of families, their electricity bills, the same price as, as the, the, house, the note in their house. Mm. And so what it did is it drove a lot of manufacturing out of Germany. Germany, up until just recently, was known for precision manufacturing. If you wanted the best mechanical watch, the best pocket knife, the best flared tubing, whatever, it came from Germany. Well, all those companies had to move out of Germany because one of the big costs of manufacturing is electricity. So they screwed it up the first time. The odds of them getting it right this time and going to all nuclear are pretty freaking slim. So we'll keep an eye on this. Bah humbug. I don't, you're not going to have all your coal-fired energy plants gone by 2038. Saudi Arabia is pledging to help stabilize market in wake of the U.S.-Iran tension. We've covered this extensively. Obviously, there's been a lot of tension between the U.S. and Iran over the past, really, I mean, for, for a long time. For a very long time, actually. <laughs> yeah, but, but especially recently. Things seem to have cooled down a bit. Iran, unfortunately, took down a Ukrainian passenger airliner, and they've received a lot of backlash since then. There's been a lot of protest, a bunch of other things. But the Saudi Arabian Minister of Energy, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman Assad, a hell of a name, speaking at one of the main conferences over there. I can't Mark, do you remember the name of the conference? It was it Adapec? It wasn't Adapec. It was another one like that. I can't remember. IPTC, International Petroleum Technology Conference. Sounds kind of like the OTC. They were asked by a moderator what they thought of President Donald Trump's decision to launch the drone strike against Iran's military leader. He was quoted as saying the president can do whatever he wishes and the U.S. is a strategic partner and plays a big role in security. But OPEC has agreed to cut 1.7 billion barrels of oil a day from the market in the first quarter of 2020 in an effort to stabilize the market. But 
I don't believe there's been, honestly, I would have expected a whole lot more volatility in the market considering the the events that have transpired over the past few months. But surprisingly, I, I feel like it's been rather stable compared to the past. Yeah, so me too. So I thought, and I mean, we talked about this in the end of last year for our predictions for this year. I thought there was going to be conflict in the Middle East. What's happened so far, I don't, I'm not going to categorize as conflict, and hopefully we don't go there. And I thought you could see a big jump in crude oil prices globally, neither one of which happened. So I think the U.S.'s restraint and our current political administration's restraint and how they reacted to this, I think, kept stability in the market. Plus, I think a lot of the views and the cultures is starting to change. So I saw this is not in your list of articles, but I saw this just the other day, whereas Israel is now selling natural gas to Egypt. And you go, well, so what? Well, you have the Jewish nation of Israel selling natural gas in an open, honest business way to a predominantly Muslim country of Egypt in the Middle East. So that's a first, right? Typically, those two countries wouldn't have done business together. And I think it's awesome that they're, they're doing that. So, you know, let's, let's hope that common sense prevails. You know, let's hope that that we can keep things from escalating. Actually, I think we're already there. And this will keep this that stability in the market just to help, help people be, have more confidence in the price of hydrocarbons. And it'll help keep the price of crude natural gas a bit more stable. So to begin on that topic, the next article just kind of segues right into that. So hedge funds dump tons of oil after the Middle East tensions ease. So obviously in the first days of 2020, there was all the tension. And so I think it was around January 14th, 15th, some time frame, a ton of money managers sold the equivalent of 64 million barrels of WTI crude futures and a total of 99 million barrels worth of six of the six most closely watched and traded petroleum contracts. That's a lot. That's a lot. And that's also a world that I know a little bit about, but I don't know a lot about. The people that do that make a lot of money, those traders, but it's one of the most stressful jobs on the planet. But literally, they're predicting the future and then they're they're mitigating their risk by how they hedge what they think the future pricing is going to be. So once again, though, I would have I would have thought that a lot more would have been bought when the first attack happened on our embassy because people would have anticipated that we would have retaliated, which we did. And and it, we didn't see that big jump that I thought we would have seen. So I like that the markets kind of moderate itself. It would be curious if we have anybody out there that are really heavy into geopolitics. Why is it so stable? Is it the lack of aggression from the U.S.? Is it the fact that the U.S. and the Saudi Arabia's relationship is pretty good right now? Is it confidence in the Middle East that nothing bad's going to happen. I would love somebody to give us a little bit of feedback why they think the market is pretty stable, even with the tensions that are going on. Yeah. So with those tensions, the next article, once again, segues right again, the new energy superpower in the Middle East, which is Russia. So under President Putin, they've regained a lot of global importance that it lost after the breakup of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And so now Russia is already one of the biggest producers of oil in the world with a daily average production of 11.2 million barrels in 2019. So Iranian oil is actually roughly the same quality as the oil from Russian oil fields. And so essentially with all the sanctions that have sanctions and pressure that has been put on Iran by the United States, Russia swooping in and saying, we've got oil. Yeah, it's a smooth move by Russia. It's, you know, this is what they run their economy on. And anybody that's as old as I am that remembers the Cold War, what Reagan did that was genius is he worked with Saudi Arabia and they tanked the price of crude and they basically bankrupted the, the former Soviet Union. It was a genius move. Russia doesn't want that to ever happen again. And you know what's interesting, Jake? I can't remember the production number of Texas, but Texas is not that far away from producing as much oil as Russia does. Which I, you just got to love that. I think we're at 10 million barrels a day. Maybe I'm wrong about that. 
but but we're 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 close to that. But this just makes total market sense from a Russian point of view. You want to have as many markets as you can with Brexit going on. You're not going to know what's going on there with the with the U.S. just now starting on a commercial scale to export LNG to Europe. That might take away some market share from Russia. The big thing to keep your eye on is China and the Middle East. You know, is Russia going to grab market share in China and the Middle East? And the answer to that is, of course, yes. In order to counter that, we need to up our ability to transport hydrocarbons economically to those two parts of the world and have the right politics and business in place so that it makes sense. Don't be fooled, people. We are in a competition for market share with Russia. And, and you know, let's see who wins. It's it's The way it's set up now is we basically, it's, it's divvied up between the OPEC, Russia, and the U.S. The big growth areas could be Asia Pacific. So let's see who who captures most of that market. Russia's a little bit ahead of us over there, but I think we're going to catch up with them. And I think we're going to probably pass them up about 2025. But this is something everybody should keep their eye on. Absolutely. A little bit more bad news. McDermott is filing or preparing to file bankruptcy as soon as next week to address its more than $4 billion debt load. So the Houston-based company, which if you don't know, builds oil platforms and gas export plants for producers, negotiating a restructuring plan that could see its debt converted into equity with an existing term loan, with existing term loan lenders, getting the majority of the shares. Unsecured creditors would receive less than 10% of the equity along with warrants. This is big. I mean, if you dive into the article, I didn't realize how large of a company McDermott was. I believe the number of employees was like, I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it was like 30 something thousand employees, a massive amount of revenue, a much larger company than I ever really anticipated. So, I mean, this is big news. Yeah. All of those EPCs, the McDermott's and the floors of, of the world are all struggling right now. CB&I is another one that will probably declare bankruptcy. They're all struggling and and you know their business model has fundamentally changed and McDermott does a lot of stuff that nobody else could do. McDermott's one of the few companies that can build nuclear power plants. You know McDermott's one of the few companies that can build super tanker terminals. So they're trying trying to get some relief from the debt that they have. They'll the bankruptcy will go through, they'll restructure, you know, they'll come out smaller and leaner and fighting, but when they come out smaller and leaner and fighting, it's to give them an economic edge on still some of the big dogs out there who are also struggling. So that EPC world is just not in a great place right now. But it needs to change. It's the quality of the work that the EPC companies have done in the last, say, five or six years is nowhere near the quality that they used to do. And what's happening is the industry is starting to realize that. And when you're building, you know, if you're being paid to build a refinery or a pipeline and you go over time, well, then you can't cut that pipeline or that refinery on to make money. So now you're losing money. And so the people that normally would use the big EPCs to do this have figured out that I can do it myself now for about the same price, but I can control the quality of it. So you know, this was to be expected. I knew this was coming. Unfortunately, some people would lose their jobs, but but they'll come out of this better and leaner and, and, and get back to doing good work again. So on top of that, Schlumberger has posted a $10 billion loss in 2019. We know McDermott big is big. We know Schlumberger is one of the largest companies in the entire world. Last time I checked, it was around 150,000 employees worldwide. Obviously, they have a new CEO. I can't pronounce his name. I'd completely butcher it. And he has a completely new plan to reinvigorate Schlumberger and kind of pivot into more of a digital service company, which we've talked about at length in a lot of previous episodes. But they still have a long ways to go to get out of the red. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's Olivier Le Pew is the new CEO. What's interesting is in the U.S., which historically has been the big moneymaker for Schlumberger, that's where they're hurting. They're doing real good globally. They're just not doing good here in the U.S. And they're not doing good here in the U.S. because they have a lot of competition. And the 
the margins have been squeezed out from the service companies. But you know, honestly, this ten billion dollar loss—I know it sounds—it is a lot of money. I mean, I can't imagine having to lose ten billion dollars. But the shareholders are, still believe in Slumberjade. Their shareholder price is okay. A lot of people, a lot of faith in a new CEO, including myself. Slumberjade needs to kind of reinvent itself. It needs to clean up internally. If you don't know Slumberjay, it's a like a bunch of little political fiefdoms internally, a bunch of different business units that have grown by mostly by acquisition and they don't work well together. Not intentionally, they just have never been integrated. So the people that are doing work for Chevron at Slumberjay in their wireline division don't even know the people in Slumberjay that are doing seismic work, right? And so he'll get all that cleaned up, get all that fixed, but the, the industry as a whole needs to be more efficient. So this is what's happening. You start losing money. You don't make the profits you used to. You got to change your business. And that's what Slumberjay is doing. And like I said, our entire industry is going through this. This is just a, you know one of the many companies that are, have to change some things, change the ways they're doing business, take it on the chin. And then once again, once they get things streamlined and more efficient, more modern, they'll be fine. So uh, to round out the stories for this week, let's talk about something a little controversial. Not us. Oh, not us at all. So there are two completely different camps on the Oxy purchasing Anadarko transaction that took place last year. So you have a whole bunch of people who are for it and they're for Vicky. They think it was a great move, yada, yada, yada. And then you have the complete inverse of that. It's, it's such an interesting situation to see how it's kind of unfolded because Oxy stock was in the upper 60s whenever this deal actually took place. If you recall, they actually stole the bid away from Chevron and now their stock has dipped down to the 30s. And so essentially their, their market cap has been essentially cut in half since the transaction took place. It becomes interesting because you have two big billionaires involved in kind of a fight. Warren Buffett's not really involved in the fight. It's more so Carl Icahn doing what Carl Icahn does best, and that's being an activist investor. But if you recall, Vicky took, or Vicky and Oxy took $10 billion buy-in from Warren Buffett. Those came at, those were actually preferred shares. And based on the terms, from my understanding of it, it was kind of just, it was a no-brainer because the deal was so good for Warren Buffett that it was almost like his fiduciary responsibility to take the deal. So he's guaranteed an 8% dividend on his $10 billion. And that is $800 million in dividends annually. That's not bad. But Carl Icahn is saying that due to the share price being essentially cut in half, you know, he believes that his billion dollar stake is potentially underwater. So the article is talking that Oxy is due for a rebound, though I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not either. It's it's it was a educated gamble. There's just too many variables going on to, to make this a, a good long-term play for their shareholders. I do think it's interesting that Icon wants one of his people to run the board, which is John Heifmeister, which if you don't know John, he's a great guy, former president at Shell. John, if you're listening, big shout out. I know you, I, he actually does listen to this show. Him and I run in the same public speaking circles a lot. You know, I'm going to go on the side of this is not going to go well, quite honestly. It was an educated gamble. I thought the Chevron purchase of Anadarko made a lot of sense. And when this happened with Oxy, and especially with Buffett getting in the mix, and then Icon throwing stuff stones everywhere and with all the negative public perception and with the long-term abundance in hydrocarbons and with all the debt that's going on and with the market not wanting to invest in production anymore, but wanting to invest in actual profits. I just just don't think this is going to go well. No, I completely agree. You know, I've everything that I've kind of heard from boots on the ground is that you know, Oxy hasn't completely changed their ways. And a lot of people, a lot of investors, stock analysts, and even people possibly that work at the company or have worked with them consider Oxy to be kind of just a destroyer of cash. 
and they're really good at that. So that's just what I've heard. I don't, I've never worked there. I've never actually worked with Oxy. So I can't speak from personal I know a experience. lot of people that work, that work at, at Anadarko. And I've heard a lot of people tell me almost exactly the same thing. In fact, a lot of those people are looking to leave and what's going to happen in the middle of all this. If, if they lose a lot of their key talent, you know, I just, like I said, it's just too many variables outside of, of everybody's controls going on. On that topic, that was like, that was probably one of the most, I guess, unfortunate things about everything was that Anadarko had built up a really great culture. Everybody at Anadarko loved to work at Anadarko. It was very innovative for an ENP. They were trying a lot of new technology. They were piloting, you know, a bunch of different startups, new technology, a lot of the ones that I run in circles with. And that is pretty, I won't say that it's all com- completely come to a halt, but a lot of that has been kind of curtailed for the moment. No, it has come to a halt. They, they've shut down all that stuff. In fact, a lot of people that are doing that outside the box thinking that we're, you know, getting code written at Top Coder or looking at AI and, and, and looking at uh, small startups, if they, you know, make it, does it make a, a good strategic acquisition for Oxy? That they're all gone. They've left. Either they've been asked to leave or they've left on their own. So that innovative part that made Anadarko so different as an independent operator is dead. And it's a shame because it, Anadarko was just – Anadarko is one of my favorite companies out there. Even their offices are cool right here in, in the woodlands. So you know, let's hope that Vicky can turn this thing around. Let's hope that they can grow the company. Let's hope that nobody else loses their jobs and you know, just keep our fingers crossed for, for them. But I, I, just, I just don't see it going well. All right, guys. The rest of the stories for this week – Mark, we're still doing the giveaways, so we're still doing the giveaways. Once again, another big shout out to IBM. They they re-upped their contract, so I guess we fooled them. Not really. And actually, Jake, we, you do so. Audience, you may not know this, but Jake and I are never in person. When we do this. We're both remotely. We, Jake and I are so busy, we don't communicate. So the way the way Jake finds out that somebody wants us to go speak is the calendar invite appears in his calendar, and it says <laughs> something like California or New Mexico or something. But we got some speaking stuff we're gonna actually do for IBM in the middle part of, of this year, which is cool. But the coolest thing is this shirt. So on the front, it's got a, a pump jack. Illustration from an old patent from the 1800. One sleeve has the OGGN logo on it. Other sleeve has the IBM logo. But the most important thing is on the front of the shirt, very small, under the pump jack illustration, there's a unique serial number. Each shirt has a different number. That number is super valuable to whoever has those shirts. And by the way, Jake, I've had five or six people reach out to me so excited about the shirts and they have their they have the number written down so they can figure out what they're going to win. Jake and I are going to give something cool. Actually, we're going to do several cool gives away based on that number really, really soon. So if you have that shirt, make sure you know what that number is. When we announce the winners with that number, there's going to be a time limit. We have to do that to keep the legal folks happy. So pay attention, folks. So go. we give away one a week. You just go to the show notes, click on the link and uh, put your information in. And like I said, we'll give one away, one away a week. And if you don't win one, enter the next week, you can enter every week. And then the weekly rig count by drilling info is no longer drilling info, Jake. Inveris. And what's the drilling rig it count? Is no change from last week's. We're at 817 rigs. My kind of prediction for Q1, I think we're actually going to dip below 800. I think we'll hit the 700s. I'd have to think about that for a little bit, but I would not be surprised if you were right. Street team, if you want to be a, a member of our all-volunteer street team, just go to Facebook, find the group, the OGG and street team group. We ask you to volunteer, give us an hour's worth of work a week. But if you can't, we get it. We're busy too. It's okay. But like we just did our last live event just a week or so ago is around AI in the oil and gas industry, the reality. And about five of my street team people showed up to help us check people in the door. So the cool thing is you're part of the street team. You actually go to our events for free. If we're in your local area going to our conference or expo, you can be part of our press team, which means you get to go to the event for free and you get to help us with our social media. So go join the street team. And then big shout out to BCD Travel. They're a travel provider of choice. They make our oil and gas traveling life so much easier. And Jake, they're giving away free coffee. 
to our listeners, just free coffee, just because they like you. You don't have to win, win or register. And actually, I do think you have to give an email address, but the link's in the show notes. And I've said this before, for three months, I had the wrong link in the show notes. So for everybody that tried to win coffee and got some bizarre page, that was my fault. We fixed that. Go click on the link, get your free Starbucks gift card. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak, we're booking up, but we would love to do it and also bring this podcast to your event. Actually, Jake, I think we have two or three companies already that want us to bring a podcast to their live event. So that's actually really taken off for us. It's fun. Something different awesome, than anything yeah. else you've ever seen. The audience gets involved and then your company gets exposure on the show. So reach out to us and we'd be happy to share the details. Then you know the deal. First Friday Q&A. Go to the website. Enter your question. If we use your question on the show, we'll give you a big shout out. And while you're out there, once again, you know what? I'm not going to ask you to give us your email address because we're changing the website. Whenever the new website's up, I'm going to ask you to start giving us your email addresses again because that's what we use to notify our listeners when we do something cool. And then finally... Join our LinkedIn group. We're over 30,000 followers, Jake, on our LinkedIn group and growing like crazy. It's moderated by real people, so no spam. So it's a great way just to kind of interface with your oil and gas peers. And it's the home for the sister for this show and all of our other, where are we, seven oil and gas podcasts. All right, Jake, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are the events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for January 2020. First of all, Happy New Year. We have a couple of great events coming up to kick off 2020 with y'all. The first one will be a Houston happy hour taking place on January 16th at the Cannon from 6 to 9 p.m. This event will be all about artificial intelligence for oil and gas. Reality, not hype. The event will feature a panel discussion and include drinks and snacks. Be sure to get your tickets. You can find our event bright link on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook, or in our Modal Point newsletter every month. The next happy hour we're having is our Denver happy hour on January 30th from 4 to 6 p.m. at Liberty Oil Field Services. This event will have a panel of GEOs and feature a live recording of the Crude Audacity podcast. So it'll be super cool. Be sure to join us. Also get your tickets once again from the links posted in our Modal Point newsletter or on Oil & Gas Global Networks, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We also will be having a Pittsburgh happy hour sometime in February with the date coming soon. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Other events on deck include the Houston API Energy General Meeting on January 14th. Guest speaker Eric Switzer, VP Global Services of Baker Hughes, will be discussing accelerating transformation in oil and gas. The 2020 Industrial Market Outlook and Networking event will be on January 23rd in Houston, and they will be discussing the latest trends that will impact project spending in North America, including the Gulf Coast region, over the next 12 to 24 months. Lastly, the Wildcatters Ball will be held on February 7th, 2020 in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. The proceeds will go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and check in next month for the events on deck for February. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.